Hey everybody, welcome to the Science Facts and Fallacies podcast brought to you by the Genetic Literacy Project. I'm your host, Cameron English. And I'm your co-host, Kevin Fulta, a professor who cares about science communication. This is the weekly show where we discuss the biggest stories from the Genetic Literacy Project to keep you informed about groundbreaking developments from the world of science and medicine, and of course, to help you separate facts from fallacies as you read the headlines. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to the show. Cameron and Kevin here with you as always. 191, Kevin, 191. How are you today? Doing wonderfully. How are you doing? It looks like uh, a good opportunity to start thinking more about episode 200. Yeah, dude, we're getting close. I wasn't going to mention it this week, but you brought it up. So I I don't know what we're going to do. Given that we're talking about alcohol today, maybe we shouldn't do shots on episode 200, but uh, I Two shots. (laughs) <laughs> or it's uh, or new maybe we'll get a new covid subvariant by then there's one called barbecue or something i think i, I saw it on twitter yeah. <laughs> i think it's called bbq or something that yeah. is uh that's how i live my life if i see it on twitter i know it's a fact and i make important decisions based on that information um uh, <laughs> i did want to i did want to mention one thing to you i i have my first peer-reviewed publication coming out pretty soon and uh, it's quite an experience to have people anonymously review your work because you get great feedback, but then you also get like really random stuff like, you know, should you yeah. dot your eyes with a heart and then color it in so people know that you, uh, you know, you care about their feelings like these kind of these <laughs> these kind of notes that don't <laughs> don't matter all that much. And I have a friend who's an anthropologist. He works with um, Indian tribes out here in California. And I told him about this and he was like, was it reviewer number two? I was like, yeah, it was reviewer number two. How did you know? He's like, it's always reviewer number two. It's always, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's kind of the running gag in the industry is, and I don't know if it's, you know, as an editor, I never stack them that way. Like I go, okay, here's the crackpot one. We'll make that reviewer two. No, they just, they just, it just always seems to be reviewer number two or sometimes reviewer number three, but it depends on how many, how many did you get? Uh, there were multiple there. Were, yeah, there were like, it, it, yeah, there were, there were multiple involved and they were all really good, but it's different people with different perspectives. And so sometimes it's difficult to harmonize what they're telling you. Um, so yeah, it was ch- challenging experience, but, uh, amusing as well. Yeah. The big problem is, is that we don't train people in peer review very well. Um, and I'm saying the collective, we, because I certainly do, uh, it's, there's always this feeling that peer review is this for many people is now I get to be the gatekeeper and I need to crush everything that doesn't look acceptable and uh, name the next 20 experiments that you could have done. You know, what you're really there to do is does the work fit the journal? That's mm-hmm. it. Does yeah. the work fit the journal? And, and do you demonstrate the experimental design, the quality of the question, the statistical rigor and the outcomes and the interpretations that make it appropriate for that quality of journal. And that's your job. And so how do you work as a partner with the author to get them there rather than this adversarial relationship, which most people conjure. So that, but that's me. I'm crazy and probably nobody. (laughs) (laughs) We love you because you're crazy, Kevin. Anyways, let's get on to our stories and we'll stop babbling about peer review. Uh, So first up, how reporters regularly botch nutrition studies. Next, taking a break from alcohol, here's the positive changes in the brain when you stop drinking for a month. 
And finally, acne affects half of people over 25 in Western countries, but it's basically non-existent in non-industrialized societies. Why? We're going to explore that. But first up, Kevin, we've got, uh, we're going to use the media as a punching bag for this story. <laughs> and this is, uh, <clears throat> this is an article I wrote. So let me summarize this. And then I'm really eager to get your, your input on this because this is right up your alley in terms of science communication. So uh, in late August, a bunch of headlines popped up, and uh, they all basically said the same thing about this study. This one's from the New York Post. Uh, it says, eating grapes can extend your life by five years and reduce Alzheimer's risk, study says. Okay, So that was that every news story basically repeated this message. Now, when you actually go look at the paper, it's way, way different. And it took me forever to read this thing, dude. It was, it was a monster. And, uh, and I did it so I could you know, report on it as accurately as I could. But um, for, first up, it's a study in, in rodents. It's a study in mice. So it's not like they followed people all their lives and they said, hey, people eat grapes, live five years longer. That's not what they did. So that's one thing to note right off the bat. But they did two experiments. So they took 200 mice and they separated them into two groups. And then they fed, uh, they fed them both uh, a high-fat diet, but one of them got a powdered grape supplement. And then they tracked their weight over the, the length of their lives and they tracked how long they lived. And the supplemented group actually gained more weight in this, in this first experiment. Keep that in mind because that'll be important later. But in the second one, they had four groups of 10 female mice each. And they had just a standard rodent diet. And then they had a standard diet with the supplement. Then they had a high-fat diet uh, by itself. And they had a high-fat diet with the supplement. And then after 13 weeks of the of these different diets, they euthanize the animals and they look at their liver and they're looking for, for biomarkers that might be associated with, with Alzheimer's. Um, and they're, they're, anyways, there's all these different analyses that they're doing to see, you know, are the animals any closer to developing uh, Alzheimer's? And, you know, does this translate to human population? So this is generally what they're looking at. But I just want to stress one thing from the conclusion of this paper, and you can read this if you go click on click on my article. This is very easy to find. They say, we have yet to investigate the effects of grapes on gene expression related to Alzheimer's disease in our mouse model. Okay, <laughs> so right off the bat there, what the media is reporting is just, you know, like orders of magnitude off of what this study actually did. So I have, I have much more to say, but I'll stop here. What are your thoughts? Well, I don't have to comment specifically on this article to really mention. We are seeing something that's really disturbing, and I see it more and more, and I'm actually writing an article for it for peer review as well, about the clickbaitization of science. That now important health news, especially where it's either really positive stuff like, you know, eat grapes, you're going to not have Alzheimer's, and uh your urine, 80% of urine has glyphosate in it, either the alarmist or the super hyper uh, feel good are being promoted freely in the media, but neither of them are true, or at least are accurate in terms of describing the relative risk or benefit that is truly associated with the treatment that they're speaking of or the, or the environmental cause. So it, it's something we're seeing more and more I think that we used to believe that the truth is stranger than fiction. And that means that for novelty and interest, the truth is a little bit better, but now the truth is being fictionalized 
in order to gain more attention. And I think it's just another residue of our attention economy. People trying to get, uh, get their words in front of people. And you know, if it, if it, if it bleeds, it leads, right? Uh, I think this is really where we're at. You know, I saw a poll just very recently, just a couple days ago, and it shows that trust in the media is at an all-time low. Like, like it's not quite single digits, but it's almost. And if you if you were to look at um, like 1995 as a baseline, it's at like 43% of the population trusts the news that they get from uh, cable news and newspapers and so forth. And today it's like almost single digits. And I, and I don't know this for sure. I'm just speculating, but I, I suspect that it's these kind of news articles that have contributed to that trend because even if it grabs people's attention and they're inclined to read it because it is clickbaity, as you said, they, they look it over and they go, you know, is really like eating 300 grams of grapes is going to prevent Alzheimer's. Like I just, it just seems to me that people go, that's, that sounds like bullshit. And I, and I, I wonder if that's happening. Yeah, I think that's a big part of it, but it's also the fact that we're getting um, uh, health information fatigue. Yeah. Now that we have lightning fast information, I mean, go back to the 1970s. I could tell you that there has been coffee is good for you. Coffee is killing you. Wine <laughs> is good for you. Wine is killing you. Chocolate is good for you. Chocolate is killing you. And basically hearing this on and off for the last 40 years, everybody has kind of said, you know what, I'm just going to kind of tune this out now. Yeah. Because it, it doesn't, none of it ever pans out. None of it really cranks into the next big therapy or, you know, so you don't have some other thing happen. I was actually at a conference once in Italy and the speaker was awesome. She showed her effects of resveratrol on, on rice, on mice, on rice, on mice. <laughs> and, um, uh, and if you uh, fed mice so much resveratrol, and this was like one of these studies where you have to give them like 250 milligrams per kilogram body weight, this kind of thing, in order to see the effect. Right. And you know, 250 milligrams per kilogram is like 25 grams for a 100-pound person, basically. 100, 100, a 220-pound person, 100-kilogram person. And so my, my, I <laughs> went up to the microphone at the end, and I said to her, this is really great stuff, but how many bottles of wine to drink? <laughs> and the whole room started laughing because it was, it was, you would have to drink 55 liters of wine to achieve the level of <laughs> the 55 liters of red wine to achieve the levels that you would need in order to see the beneficial effect. At which point the negative effects of 55 liters of wine would probably kick in. So, so, you know, it's things like this that I think make people roll their eyes and be, make us a little more skeptical. Yeah, that's a really good point. And it, it goes to something else I wanted to say. I'm, I'm looking at a, a review article in uh, the International Journal, Journal of Obesity, and Nature publishes this. So th these researchers, they did a survey of obesity experts, both people that work with animal models and people that do clinical work. And one of the things that they pointed out in this article is that uh, rodents typically don't eat high fat diets. Uh, like, like their typical chow contains like 4% fat. So it's very, very little. It's just, they didn't evolve to eat fat the way that humans did. But most of these studies and, and the feed that they use in the, in this research, it contains something like 30%, 45% or 60% fat. And so this is just generally not good for the animals and it makes it makes these studies a bad model for, for human diets. 
because we're pretty good at, at consuming fat and metabolizing fat. You can, you know, your body knows what to do with it. And there's lots of, lots of nutrients in it, like in, in red meat, for example. So that's, that's just a more general problem, but it's like when you up the fat, you screw with the amount of sugar content in the diet as well. And then there's different kinds of fatty acids, right? Fat is not just a monolith. There's different kinds of fat and those have different metabolic effects as well. So all that to say, you know, it's not that you can't use animals for research like this, but you just have to be aware of the limitations. And I don't think journalists, they either don't care or they don't know this. And so they, they, they miss this and it's really important. Well, they make an honest mistake. I think in most cases that we see a lot of people extrapolating in vitro data. Yeah. So it happens in a test tube. And so we say, okay, that's going to, you know, cure Alzheimer's or, you know, now we see it in the lab rat. So it's going to be great for whatever it it's each one of these steps has separate limitations that we have to consider. It doesn't mean that they're bad. It doesn't mean that they're good. It just helps us refine the hypothesis as we begin to move towards more challenging clinical trials in uh, humans or approval for use in humans when things move into more of an epidemiological realm. So it's not a, you know, it's not a, it's not a damning thing, but it just says that we have to be very careful when we interpret these studies. And uh, today's journalists, especially in science, you know, we're losing our science journalism. Uh, science desks at major networks and newspapers are gone. Uh, we've got uh, someone handing this to a graphics intern and say, here, go write about it. <laughs> that happened this week. And, and so, <laughs> and, and, the, and the outcome was atrocious. And so just, you know, long story short there, but uh, it, it just is a, it's just another symptom of the, of our science literacy as we begin to see back, we've got an attention economy that's craving for people's eyeballs. We've got journalists who have to sell a story and we've got uh, enthusiastic scientists or science communication groups out of universities that are trying to promote a study. And this just creates a perfect storm for misunderstanding. Yeah. The, one other thing I wanted to add, just, just to kind of highlight the absurdity that we're dealing with here. <laughs> so j just a little bit of background. When you gain an excessive amount of weight to the point that you're obese or you're morbidly obese, that causes inflammation and that can cause a condition known as non-alcoholic fatty liver disease. And there, this is speculation, but there is some evidence that, that the inflammation that results from that might contribute to Alzheimer's as well. But this is typically diagnosed in, diagnosed in obese patients. And so if you go to the doctor and they diagnose you with uh, NAFLD, they'll say, you need to go on a diet, you need to exercise, let's get a plan together. Because as far as I know, there's no drug interventions for that. But it's primarily in obese people. Now, in this study, as I mentioned at the top, the rats that got the supplement gained the most <laughs> amount of weight. And so the researchers were left trying to explain why the biggest risk factor for this condition showed up in the animals that they, that they treated. And so they were trying to say, well, you know, obesity is complicated and there's some nuance here. There's good obesity, there's bad obesity, right? Cause they have to, it's a sort of special ple pleading, right? They have to defend their results, but it doesn't really make sense. Right. It, I, I, anyways, that was just a, just an added thing. I thought was sort of amusing is, you know, they had to explain away one of these, one of these results. But the, the final thing, just to go back to what you said, 
as I said, I read through this paper. I went through probably three or four drafts of the article before it was published. And then I had an MD review it for me, who, who I work with. So one of my colleagues, really sharp guy. And then the article was published, right? But the news articles you see didn't get any level of that attention or scrutiny. And that's what most people are consuming, right? There's just no thought that really goes into it. So that's a good point. Anything else before we move on, Kevin? No, I think that you think we've covered it well. That sounds good. Yeah, yeah. Okay. So uh, tell us about taking a break from alcohol. Is this a good idea? Well, it, apparently it is. And and there, for a couple of different reasons. And this article was written by Alexandra Becker and uh, showed up in Discover. It was called What Happens to Your Brain When You Stop Drinking. And there's some interesting data that suggests that this is probably a decent idea to occasionally abstain. And do an extended, extendo abstain just to see what happens. Um, because there appears to be some reasonable data that suggest that that kind of abstinence has some uh, positive effects. Maybe the biggest one is in pointing out the deficits that you are developing from drinking. And, and I'll get to explain what that is there. Uh, there's a lot of folks who uh, they describe as... Um, uh, sober, cautious, and and they're people who kind of feel like they want to quit, but you know maybe people feel like yeah, you know that recycle bin get full pretty quick, you know that kind of thing. <laughs> um, and it, it it's it's this idea of like sober October and dry January, these kind of artificial, uh, arbitrary uh, guidelines that people say, oh, let's just try this and see what happens. And uh, I've had people who. I know friends of mine who say this was the best thing they ever did was just to kind of get an idea of where things were. And the reason that she mentions this is because there are changes that occur inside the brain during that time that you notice and that are, that are noticeable. And she um, mentions that one of the big ones is that if you can't take a break for a month because you're, you know, crawling back into the, you know, liquor cabinet looking for a bump, you probably have got another issue going on, got another problem going on that you need to get some assistance with that, you know, maybe the addiction is a little bit too strong. But the general idea is that uh, the good news is, is that you can take a break and that you can experience a lot of return of the uh, cognitive impairments that occur from uh, long-term alcohol use. And that happens even with long-term abusers uh, relatively quickly. So that's the good news from this. What I'm about to say is all anecdotal, but it seems to confirm what these researchers are talking about. You know, I've known a few people who were alcoholics, really dependent on it to the point that it was affecting their day-to-day -day behavior. You know, like it, it's a, it was a problem. And then they stop. And it's, I mean, and this isn't surprising, but it's, it just changes their lives and you can see the difference, right? There's clarity in their face. They're just physically healthier, but they're just better people too. They're, they're better to be around. They're, they're nicer. They're, they're sharper intellectually. You know, I mean, it's a, it's a really striking difference. And what I found so, so interesting as I was reading this article is that it seems that the human body is really, really good at recovering uh, from, from these sort of problems. It, primarily it, it's because when you stop, <laughs> when you stop using mind altering substances <laughs> for a little, <laughs> at least a little while, your body goes, Oh, I'll take it from here. You know, do, do you have any thoughts on that? Cause right. You're the scientist. Tell, tell me about well, that. Yeah, it, it all sounds reasonable, but quitting is like, you know, it's like being trapped in, a, in jail with your wife and dogs. <laughs> um, <laughs> now the, uh, now to, to be, to, to be, uh, 
not funny about it is that, well, that's exactly what happens. The nervous system is extremely plastic in, in a lot of ways, not necessarily where you can repair a, you know, a broken spinal column, that kind of thing. But in terms of neurotransmitters, where you're using, you can use drugs to limit the uptake of different receptors, of different um, uh, transmitters, the manufacture of different transmitters. All these things are pretty dynamic and fluid and responding in different ways in the brain. And so when you're using alcohol, you're changing neurotransmission. And uh, a lot of it has to do with um, uh, GABA and, uh, and, and other uh, neurotransmitters. And so when you take that away and give it a little time, you see the levels of, of uh, what hap what's happening in the brain come back together and come back to being normal. And it changes behaviors. It changes energy levels, apparently. There's a lot of real uh, good benefits of that. A lot of these are um, changes that happen. Uh, mostly, um, you know, they say the biggest differences are, are cognitive. So you're seeing changes in ability to do cert certain memory tasks. Like, and in the, in the, this is stuff that wasn't in the article, but like if you look at um, uh, people over 55 to 85 who are hard drinkers who quit, you find that the ones who quit have the ability to like remember words in a list or draw a complicated figure with detail. Whereas someone who uh, has not abstained or someone who has recently quit uh, has trouble doing that. And you see improvements over six months, after six months. So after six months, you're back to almost the level of control of the controls with respect of cognition. And then the other big issue is metacognition, where these ideas that do you even realize that something is different? <laughs> are you, right. are, it's kind of the Dunning-Kruger of your own self. Are, <laughs> do, are you, are you aware enough to realize that something is different? And I think that that snaps back pretty good after, after time. So there's a lot of uh, interesting uh, discussion on that. And she even says that, that some of the uh, most interesting crowds she's hung around with are AA crowds because they're folks who are getting their, <laughs> getting their, uh, dopamine levels back and all their pleasure centers realigned to the point where it doesn't take, uh, doesn't take, uh, a, a gin blossom to get, to get yourself <laughs> back on the, you know, you, you don't have to, you don't have to drink anything to feel a little bit better. Um, and that, uh, the dopamine of the, of the brain is doing it on its own. So there's a lot in this article and, and it relates very well to just this idea that uh, a significant body of work, it's significant that uh, cold turkey recalibration of the brain is a real thing. And it begins pretty quickly. You get white matter back, you get all this stuff that really seems to increase the size, the size and capacity of the brain. The, I think what you're referring to in that story is an anecdote where one of the researchers walked into a hotel and there's a bunch of people standing around a piano and they're all singing and playing and they're having a jolly old time. And so he walked over to see what's going on and he thinks they're all plastered. And it turns out it was an AA group. <laughs> they're just, they're just having a grand old time and they're, they're sober as a, you know, a Catholic priest. <laughs> the church mouse. Yeah. yeah. Or whatever yeah. that would be. I don't know what that, what's that analogy? I don't know. I don't think sober as a Catholic priest sticks. I don't know. Sober as someone who's always sober. 
just to okay, yeah. drain the fun completely <laughs> out of it. <laughs> I think we could find a good analogy there, but I got to think about that a little bit. Uh, the yeah. whole thing is really, it, it was, it was an interesting article that really reinforces what a substantial body of literature shows. And one of the places where they show what there's quite a bit of literature on what happens with aging brains and alcoholism that uh, alcohol use or excessive alcohol use, regular alcohol use or excessive use with age has a very synergistic effect. And uh, one of the things that she mentions here is that age by and large is more lethal than alcoholism. Well, okay. But <laughs> you don't say. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Ask those 102 year olds how good their future looks. Um, but it's more that, uh, that these things together seem to be uh, quite synergistic and you know, it, it, so it's one of these things that I think that that test of take a month off and see how you feel, uh, because the other important part here is that when you stick people in MRIs and you start looking at their brains and understanding what's happening through that recovery period, a lot of what's happening, especially in males, is uh, in the limbic system. So you're seeing changes in emotional parts of the brain, especially if you show them uh, a picture of a frosty mug of beer when they're 20, 21 days in or, or, you know, or, uh, you know, Jack and Coke. Now all of a sudden it's like, you know, you, you see that emotional center lighting up yeah. because you're looking for that dopamine bump that you're going to get when you have that drink. And that takes a little time to clear up, but that is definitely why it is so challenging. So take a month off. Um, if you're like me, do February because it's the shortest one. <laughs> you, know, you know, that challenge there is getting through Groundhog's Day without popping one. But um, it's uh, it, it definitely is something that probably is a good way to evaluate your use and get a realistic handle on, is this something that might be good to seek outside assistance? Absolutely. Yeah. See, we give good advice. We give good science and we give good advice. You're welcome, everybody. Okay, Kevin. Uh, acne, is this a unique problem to Western countries? This is a really interesting question because I've read a lot about this over the years, but I never really dug into it too much. And if you look in non-industrialized societies, you go out to the, the, the you know, the folks in New Guinea who uh, have been very barely visited by Westerners and the, the, those tribes that have been studied for diet and things around the world because they have very little outside influence, uh, Inuits, things like that. They don't get zits. And, uh, and even mostly in the non-industrialized world in general, uh, acne is not a thing. Yet in Western countries, it's, uh, it's a ridiculous amount of stuff. It's something like $3 billion a year industry from treatments and loss of productivity due to acne, which loss of productivity, I models. I don't know. You're sitting out today. Yeah. So um, I don't know, but, but the bait, that was something, a statistic I found in research for today. And in general, nobody really knows why. And it, it doesn't seem to fit any of the major potential contributors that are there. But what they're finding is that, um, you know, just a little bit more about acne. It's um, a problem in something to 80 to 90% of adolescents uh, 25% of adults experience some sort of uh, acne breakouts or problems, you know, persistent problems. And, uh, and uh, you know, I mean, I know personally, you know, I, I still get still get one now and then. And the thing is, is I'm not under like intense surveillance for it and my eyesight sucks. So it's always like someone will say, hey, man, there's what's that thing on your nose? 
<laughs> and there shouldn't have to. And the other rule is, is that you shouldn't be allowed to have gray hair and acne at the same time. It's one or the other, but um, <laughs> just, you know, just the, the fault of rule. Um, but the bottom line is, is that when you look at acne across the U uh, S and, and Western culture in general, since 1990, it's up 48%, like the people who are uh, getting this. So obviously it's glyphosate, right? Um, <laughs> Just ask Joe Rogan. <laughs> that's right. You know, you can send it this thing and say that by 2030, every adult will have a pizza face. You could, you know, if we could do that extrapolation thing she does. Um, but the, the, even the, these non-industrialized folks, even in their teens, no acne. And it's not just a genetic thing. If they come here, then they get it. So if you, you know, so, so it's something about the way we do something and that's the big mystery. So much to say here. It is a really interesting story. And by the way, this was by, this was by Ross Pomeroy. He's the editor at real clear science. And he's also a contributor to big think. And a really interesting story. He's a real great writer. It's very concise. But there, I found some interesting things. I tried to dig through the literature just a little bit, and I haven't done nearly enough research to preach any solid conclusion on this. But I found one uh, meta-analysis from 2015, and they were looking at <clears throat> these two studies that were done in uh, New Guinea, and then I forget where the other, Paraguay was the other one, I think. In any case, they looked at these two, two studies, and they said, well, the findings of these studies are intriguing, they have not yet been repeated in other indigenous populations and such cohorts, further evaluation of diet, dairy ingestion, and uh, acne, blah, 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 right? So basically they need to repeat these studies and they haven't done that for some reason. So, so th those two articles uh, were from, I believe, 2002 or earlier. So this is really old research and it hasn't been replicated, repli replicated, excuse me. And I'm not sure why that is, um, but I also did find another uh, meta-analysis. This one is from 2020. And they pointed out that acne, while it is, like rates of acne are high in, in the US and Canada and in uh, Europe, uh, acne is increasing in prevalence all over the world. So, so it's not that there are certain things we probably could do better in terms of diet and exercise and access, you know, sun, sun exposure, vitamin D, all this kind of stuff, better sleep, blah, blah, blah. That's all true, I'm sure. And it might contribute to acne, but I am a little bit skeptical of this hypothesis. It just kind of comes off as like nature, good civilization, bad. It's that sort of thing. Like, you know, our ancestors just ate deer guts and berries off the bushes and they never got disease. And you know, basically it was like the garden of Eden. I mean, they died at 31, but it was paradise. You know, it has, it has that sort of mythology to it that I'm always generally skeptical of. So it just seems like we have a lot to learn is all I'm saying, Kevin. Yeah. And when you talk about, you know, they say that more research is needed and you never see it is what they did was the larger study. It turned out not to have any effect. And it's very hard to publish something that says, you know, we, we didn't see anything, you know, you, you have to, it's hard to publish negative data and the article ha and also all the other data, if you go online and look at, look at reviews on acne, they talk about questions about studies that review the studies on diet. And there doesn't seem to be a link exercise doesn't seem to be a link sunlight, uh, no link, um, stress, no link. Um, one of the ones that I thought was compelling and I'm going to put my money on this too much hygiene that my skin was the worst growing up when I used to wash the crap out of it so that it didn't look bad. And so was I just exacerbating the problem 
by uh, by you know doing doing a, a, a round with ivory soap and then doing a round with uh, rubbing alcohol and then doing a you know <laughs> applying a mud mask you know I mean it just was you, we we do so much to disrupt our microbiome and so all the crap that's on us that all the bacterial film that covers us that has a uh, that competes for that niche that space that when that's not there, are we allowing a gateway for acne vulgaris, which is the, the uh, bacterium that does this, uh, where that can now find a home? And so I'm going to put my money on uh, microbiome and that uh, when you're in the, this, the uh, time of your life, when your sebaceous glands are more active because of uh, uh, hormones and all that good stuff during your adolescence, that that is a time that we most notice the imbalance when we create it. And then we go so far as to take steps to make that imbalance worse uh, between taking antibiotics for acne, topical antibiotics, scrubbing your face with that apricot scrub with the little pieces of broken apricot <laughs> bits in it. And like, I mean, all the, all the stuff you used to do, like when I used to take my clown makeup off, um, I'm serious. I take my clown makeup off after working at the ground round and it, and I had to scrub, scrub, scrub to get that stuff off. And here I am thinking that it's the grease paint is the reason that I'm getting breakouts. It was probably scrubbing it off as hard as I was. So I should have just left it on. <laughs> I, that's such a great way to start a story. So I'm taking off my clown makeup. Like, <laughs> like whatever follows after that is just going to be awesome because you're wearing clown makeup. Okay. Yeah, as long as it's not followed by, and then I had to wash the blood out of the concert. <laughs> <laughs> no, no murder jokes. Okay. Um, okay. A, a couple of serious questions though. So you mentioned that, you know, it's hard to, you know, reproduce negative data. I totally understand what you're saying, but if, if, if the distinction, if the variable that matters is, you know, a Western diet or a Western way of living versus a more traditional indigenous way, whatever you want to call it, shouldn't you be able to identify that in other populations that, you know, live off the land and they don't, you know, they don't work in factories and office buildings and they get plenty of sun. Like, in other words, I think that you should be able to show this in a different population. Does that make sense? Well, sure. And, okay. and if you can design that experiment and do it, then that, then you can at least test that hypothesis. I got you. My guess is, is that they did a hypothesis that was much less, um, out there, you know, something that was a little bit more uh, likely, you know, on the scale, like we're going to look at sugary beverages or we're going to look at, you know, something where you could have a uh, population that's pretty easy to access and can uh, answer with a questionnaire, you know, that kind of thing. These are expensive studies. Yeah. And so it, it's hard to say. Um, I, I know that, uh, that, that these kinds of things, if there is some sort of unusual Western behavior or something that we do, it's not going to fall out real easily. It's going to take a lot of time to look at. They've looked at all the easy stuff and haven't found that association. And that, that makes sense. I mean, and it, it's a good point in that the tools that we have at our disposal to study this are, they're still not very sophisticated because you're, you're just doing epidemiology and to do it globally you have, you know, different countries with different resources and your access to the kind of data you need, the kind of data you need is probably limited. So I'm not bashing anybody here. I'm just saying it, it it's, I just want to avoid the temptation to find a, a simple explanation and go, ah, see, nature is good, that kind of thing. Um, one, one final thought that I, I think is interesting too. I haven't seen any, I, I don't know if this has been addressed or not, but I think even 
in within populations, you'd see a lot of variability. So like the people in Martha's Vineyard don't live the same way that people do in Southern Alabama. You know what I mean? So it's like diet, exercise, that like just the way you're living is very different, even though you're technically in the same country. So I'm curious to find out how that might influence these sorts of results. Yeah, sure. There's a segmentation of, yeah, yeah. of the population and the different different groups that may fall out. And those are the kinds of more sophisticated uh, analyses that can happen when you have sufficiently large populations that you can start to segment out different groups and, and statistically relevant numbers. But usually if you don't have those numbers, you just end up chasing noise. So it's, it's, it's an interesting question. I, I'm, I'm still, you know, the more I learn about um, the critters that live on us and in us, um, the more I like to leave them alone. And, and I'm starting to think that uh, this idea of, you know, face washing, uh, you know, incessantly when you're in your teens, uh, so you don't get acne is probably the main cause. And, and when I was, I, I used to use everything because I tried so hard to not be like zitty. And, uh, and, and I tried, the, the, the worst one was, is like, you know how they have benzoyl peroxide and things like clearasil and stuff. Yeah. It's like at 10%. Well, um, if you bondo your car, it comes <laughs> with like a 90% benzoyl peroxide, which is used as a, uh, a catalyst or whatever it is in, uh, in the, hardening of of bondo and i was repairing the doing some body work on my 1973 ford maverick and thought i'm going to clear up my homecoming and put <laughs> a little dollop of that stuff on and i mean it burned so bad and i think i still have a mark from it so don't use body repair mechanisms body repair stuff on skin there's your take home for episode 191 there you go. Yeah. Maybe use that as a baseline. And then if your doctor or your dermatologist says otherwise, listen to them because they are your body doing. repair guy. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, technically it is body repair. <laughs> yeah, I suppose that's, that's true. I just, I, and again, this is not groundbreaking, but I do find it so funny that it's the time in your life when you're starting to get interested in the opposite sex and you're, getting curious about love and romance and, and all this. And that's when your face explodes with these ugly ass red pimples. It's just, it just sucks, man. High school's an awkward time. I feel for you if you're out there and you're in high school, it gets better. I promise. <laughs> all right, Kevin, who are you following on Twitter? I'm following Alice Vaughn. I don't know if you know Alice. Alice is a, she's a, she's a skeptic. She's a creator. She does a lot of good stuff. Um, I uh, just had a brief communication with her last night and she reminded me of why she's so clever, but she does a lot of interesting stuff, including the offensive crayons. And if you haven't <laughs> seen the offensive crayons, check out the offensive crayons. It'll get you in lots of trouble as you, it's, it's a great stocking stuffer for someone you never want to talk to you again. Uh, she's <laughs> rational blonde, R A T I O N A L blonde, not rationale, rational blonde. Who do you follow Cameron? Uh, I am following a website called big think excellent website for just general commentary on science and philosophy. All the, all the stuff we talk about, they are at big think and uh, full disclosure. I do write for them. I have a column over there. Um, there's a, some other cool writers too. I mean, Neil, Neil Tyson's over there. Steven Pinker, Michio Kaku, you know, so it's quite an honor for them to be on the same website as me. It's uh, it's a big <laughs> deal. <laughs> That's right. Anyways, anyways. Okay. So they are at big think 
one word. Lots of cool stuff over there. And and Ross Pomeroy's article was over there on Agni. That's it. And Ross, Ross actually asked me to write an article for there. Yeah, man. So I got to get with it. You got to get with it, man. Me and Neil Tyson articles. are doing it. We we write articles, and then we get beers afterwards. You should join there us. You go. I got too many writer, too many articles to write. It's crazy, but know. You know, that's where we are. It never ends. All right, everybody, we're gonna we're gonna wrap it there. Follow us on Twitter as well at Kevin Folta at ACSH Org from my writing. Genetic Literacy Project puts this whole thing on there. Just at Genetic Literacy. Follow them as well. Thank you so much. We'll see you next time.